glad that uh, all the kids made it back from camp and had a great time. If uh, my son's, um, if what he learned is indicative of the impact on all the kids, then our church is going to be greatly blessed because it was significant for him and it was a thrill for me to hear him tell me uh, what struck him most as he shared about the, the time this week. So really grateful for that. I want to talk a little bit about science fiction this morning. Uh, specifically virtual reality, okay? It's a topic that's been pretty common within uh, movies that have been out in recent years. Uh, one of the more popular ones was the movie Matrix. Uh, you may remember that. Another one was Tron. Those are movies based on the, the science fiction of, of virtual reality. But what's interesting to me is to see how this idea of science fiction, this idea of virtual reality is becoming more and more of a, of a true reality. Um, in different things that are happening in our society. One of the more recent ones you may have heard about is this idea of Google Glass. How many of you have heard of Google Glass? Okay. This is interesting. It's not something that the common person like you and I have access to. Um, it's pretty expensive, but it, the technology is fascinating. Because what it is, is it's basically a pair of glasses that give you kind of a heads-up display like you might see in the, the cockpit of a fighter jet. So that everything that you would normally look at on your phone is now visible in the right-hand corner of your eye. Can you see that up there? Show them what that looks like. So that's what you see when you're looking through the glasses. You look up in the right-hand corner of your eye and you basically see what is ever, whatever's on your phone. And anything you want to do is then activated with voice commands. So you might say, okay, glass, that's the command. Okay, glass, take a picture. And the camera embedded in the glasses then snap a photo of whatever you're looking at at the time. You can then tell it to say, you can say, post on Twitter. It'll go to your Twitter account, post the picture, and you can give it a caption that you want to go with that picture, all by the sound of your voice. It's pretty fascinating, isn't it? What's even more interesting, though, when you want to talk about true virtual reality, is what's happening in the gaming industry. That's where that technology is coming to life. How many of you have ever heard of Oculus Rift? few of you have. It's pretty fascinating. These are goggles with integrated headphones. And as you can tell, they block out any sensation of the real world around you. You can only perceive and see what's in front of you on this uh, uh, kind of a, a screen inside these goggles. There are students at USC who've taken this concept and they've expanded it to what's called Project Holodeck. And what they've done is they have put these goggles on and then put sensors on your body so that everything that you do with your body is then replicated in this virtual world of the game. To the point that once you've acclimated to this virtual world, you lose all touch with the reality around you because you are inside the game. And this is a technology that exists right now. It's just fascinating. And I, I tell you that because I want you to think about that reality from a spiritual perspective because I think there's something very similar going on. You see, sin creates a virtual reality of its own. It, it makes you believe things that are not true. <laughs> it, it allows you to see things that are, that are not really there. And yet when you become so immersed in them, the real world loses its meaning. The truth around you is ignored. You become captivated by this fantasy world that you've now been immersed in. A world built ultimately 
for your entertainment. A place where there's real no consequence for sin. Like those games, you get shot, that's alright. You just have another life and you move on. See, Satan invented virtual reality long before mankind ever had a concept of the technology. It is a purposeful distraction to prevent you from seeing the reality of God's truth. But in His grace, God has given us His Word to open our eyes, to help us see the light, to to kind of give us a wake-up call. And as we go through the book of Proverbs, you're going to see Solomon continually making this comparison between what is deception and what is truth, what is real and what is false. He'll do it over and over again. And the reason is, is he wants you to understand what the difference is between the virtual world of sin and the true world of God's Word and God's truth. And so he'll draw that comparison back and forth all through the Proverbs. We'll see it in our passage this morning. As Solomon kind of pulls back the curtain and reveals the truth behind the lie in the temptations that we all encounter in the world around us. So that's what we're going to see happening uh, unfold in our passage this morning. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we do ask that you guide our time. It's easy in the world in which we live to be distracted, to really be taken in by this virtual world that Satan creates to uh, shape a reality around us that entertains us, that captures our attention, that in some ways causes us to lose touch with what is true, what is right. What is good? And so we know that Your Word has the power to open our eyes, to to give us the ability to see things that we may be distracted from. And so this morning I pray that that is exactly what happens. That our eyes are open, that we see what is true. And those things that are deceptive around us, may they be exposed by the power of Your Spirit and the truth of Your Word this morning. And that's our request. We come to You this morning with that heart in mind. Amen. So if you would, turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We'll pick up where we left off last. In uh, verse 8. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 8. says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Last week, you may remember, Solomon kind of gives us uh, the purpose of Proverbs. And he went as far as to tell us where to begin, right? The beginning of knowledge is, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? And so, now this morning, he's going to tell us where this instruction needs to take place. And he's very clear that it needs to be in the home. When it comes to discipleship, Solomon points directly to the parents. My son... Listen to your father. Pay attention to your mother. You you see, the child's listening assumes the parent's teaching. That there's something actively taking place in the home. And and it's a a teaching, according to Deuteronomy 6, that is consistent and, and diligent. You may remember from that passage how it talks about how a child learns wisdom from their parents when they sit in their house when they walk by the way, when they lie down, when they rise up. In other words, discipleship in the home is a full-time job. And parents should consider every moment as a 
teachable moment. As they seek to guide and instruct their children in the nurture and wisdom of the Lord. Now I think it's probably a good place to just pause for a little bit and and re-emphasize our perspective on this as a church body. I want you to know that we are fully committed to this truth. And we believe the church has an important responsibility in equipping parents for that task. As a church, we are called to, to partner with parents in order to raise up the next generation of Christian disciples. And what we do in ministry is designed to support what should already be happening in their homes. As you know, this summer we began a new curriculum in our children's and student ministry. We're going to do that through the summer. It's a curriculum that Jason and the elders have prayed for and sincerely believe that this is a tremendous tool to help us accomplish what we believe God has called us to as a church body. We're inviting you this summer to to be a part of this with us because as Jason mentions in the back of the bulletin, which I encourage you to read, it, it is a partnership. We want your input. We need your feedback because what we're learning is what's shaping what family ministry looks like at Melanie Park Church. This uh, last couple of weeks, Terry's been teaching using this new curriculum, which has given both she and I an opportunity to look at it together. And I want you to know, very honestly, I could not be more excited about what this is doing and what the capabilities are through what God has led us to. In fact, last week I asked Grant, I said, hey, give me one or two things that stuck out to you about Sunday school this past Sunday. What would you learn? Well, a little bit to my surprise, he recounted basically the whole story of Nehemiah. He said, Dad, there was this man named Nehemiah, and he worked for the king. But he was really sad because the place where he lived, the walls were broken down. And so he asked permission from that king to go back and help rebuild those walls. And he goes on and articulates the whole story of Nehemiah from what he had just learned in Sunday school that morning. And so I see what we're doing through our efforts to partner with parents as critically important to fulfill what God has called us to with this discipleship that begins in the home. And and why are we doing all this? Because we believe discipleship is a really, really big deal. This past spring, we've had several parenting meetings talking about what that looks like. In the fall, our plan is to have a parenting conference to spend extended time with moms and dads of all different seasons of life, talking about how do we raise our kids in a way that they follow God's instruction through the power of the Spirit. You see, we believe God's design is for dads and moms to work together, to lead their kids, to learn what it means to live a life that is fully devoted to Christ. And it's the responsibility of the church for all of us to partner with them, to to equip them for that most important task. And you can see from our passage just how he begins here. With his very first instruction, he turns to the parents. He, He builds it on that same premise. Children, listen to your dad. Pay attention to your mom. Because God has called them to teach His truth to you. And then look again at verse 9 because he kind of gives you the reward when you follow that instruction. It says, Indeed, they are graceful wreath to your head 
and an ornament around your neck. So how many of you kids are just real excited about getting those things? A wreath around your head and an ornament around your neck. Does that not motivate you to obey your parents? No? Well, let me explain a little bit about what that means and let's see if perhaps it will. And to do that, here's what I want you to do. Kids, students, I want you to think of your favorite Olympic athlete. Okay, think about the Olympics. And I don't know about you, but I love the Olympics. And so I want you to think to, to somebody who's been successful, somebody like Michael Phelps, the swimmer, maybe Carly Patterson, the, the gymnast. And I want you to think about them for just a little bit. And let me ask you, did these people just wake up one day and all of a sudden be phenomenal in their sport? Of course not. I mean, I, I think, granted, God has given them some, some talent, but what made that talent come alive? What did they do to become really, really good in that particular sport? They had to train, didn't they? And they needed to, thank you. And they needed a good coach to give them the, the instructions of the right things to do for them to improve and to get better, to, to polish their skills. I don't know if you heard this, but when Michael Phelps was having his success, they talked about how much training he would do. He would swim over 50 miles every week, about five to six hours today. He would burn like 12,000 calories every time, which means he would eat anything he wanted anytime he wanted. <laughs> right? I mean, it's just amazing how much time. But why? What are all these Olympic athletes striving for? What is it? Gold medal. All right, let me show you a picture. What do you see on their head? What's around their neck? The ornament of a gold medal. So what's being communicated here is that when children follow the, the godly instruction of their parents, then like an Olympic athlete, they are honored for what they accomplish. They are respected for the choices that they make. They have victory over the world's temptations that they face every single day. But it takes discipline. It takes training. It takes instruction to know what the right things you need to, to focus on to grow and mature. But I want you to think back again to this Olympic athlete scene. When they get this gold medal and they're standing on this podium, right? And then this is in Athens, so it goes back to the way things really happened in the beginning where they wore the wreath on their head and the ornament around their neck. That's what this is talking about. And so when they are standing on that podium, what's happening in the background? What's playing? National anthem, right? As they receive that honor, the, the national anthem is playing in the background. And so those who are honored then turn around and honor the country that they represent. Well, in much the same way, when you are honored for living a godly life, you then turn around and honor the one you represent. It's like the song we just sang. We bow down. We lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus because that's who you represent. Your life should always bring honor to Christ. And that happens best when you follow the wisdom and guidance of your parents 
who were instructed by God to lead you in a way that leads you to Him as they strive to do the same in their own life. They're not perfect, but neither are you. But the desire is to strive together towards that common goal. God's designed it that way. Children, listen to your father. Listen to your mother. So that you may have the crown of life and victory over the temptation in the world. And now Solomon's going to speak specifically about what that looks like. So look at verse 10. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as they who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they hasten to shed blood. All right, how many of you have been tempted recently to commit murder? Don't raise your hand if you have. All right, Jake, I'm taking note over there, buddy. We, we haven't. And so it would be easy to look at a passage like this as it's talking about those who are taking someone's life, who are striving to... Uh, to to shed blood, and we'd say, well, okay, that doesn't apply to me. And we dismiss it. But I think it does apply, and let me explain why. To answer that question, I want us to focus not on the action itself, but on the motive behind it. Because here's the temptation. Listen to this. These are people inviting you to be a part of their group. And it's a popular group. So there's some appeal to this. They're a group that has power. They have wealth. It's a winning team. Okay? They are successful in what they do. Let's go do this. This is going to be fun. Hey, listen, if we stick together, it's no big deal. Nobody's going to find out because, hey, we're in this together. Okay? Let's go do this thing. That's the temptation. And let's be honest, really, if we just narrow this down, no matter what age we are, it is an appealing temptation to enter into a lifestyle where there's power, where there's wealth, and where there's great success. And that's the invitation of these people. But we learn from our passage that these things are achieved by taking advantage of other people. It says that they ambush the innocent by taking what belongs to others and then sharing it among themselves. That's how they gain their wealth. That too sounds pretty devious. So we can look at it and say, well, again, doesn't apply to me. But let me ask you this. Have your words ever been used as a weapon? Have you ever intentionally said something with the desire to hurt another person. Have you ever made another person your enemy and taken it upon yourself to give them what they deserve? 
Maybe you've never stolen money. But have you ever stolen someone's dignity? Have you ever robbed them of their dignity by always considering the worst about them? So that everything they do is then interpreted with an evil intent. You see, the invitation to join this group is an offer to see life from a single, selfish point of view. To join with others who are just like you at the exclusion of those who are not. It's a virtual world. A virtual world of sin that centers on me. A fantasy world where God's goal is my happiness. Where life is all about the pursuit of power and wealth and success. Or to put it another way, being in control, having what I want, and living life on my terms. That's the path of sinners. But here's the reality. This selfish attitude will eventually kill your relationships with one another. You will murder people with your words. It will rob marriages. It will ambush friendships for selfish gain. And most importantly, the selfishness of sin will destroy our relationship with God. And for that, we are all guilty. Because Paul tells us, there's none who seeks after God. For what? All have turned away and gone their own way. They've turned from God to live for self. Every single one of us. And so do you feel like this verse now still doesn't apply? Of course it does. You see, it's a trap. And Solomon is writing to expose the deception of this trap. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird, but they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. Verse 17 is kind of like a riddle that Solomon is using to, to expose the deception. He talks about setting a, a trap for birds in view of the birds you're trying to trap. And basically he's saying it's foolish. They're not going to fall for it. And he's using that as a contrast so that he makes those who set these traps look even more foolish because they are the ones that end up falling into the trap that they set for others. They set a trap that becomes something they catch themselves in. You'll remember beginning in verse 11 how these sinners set a trap to take advantage of others. It's a surprise attack. But in the end, it will backfire. You'll get caught in the trap that you set for someone else. Now, what Solomon is talking about here is of much more significance. But as I read this passage, I couldn't help but think about Coyote and Roadrunner. Are you with me? I mean, how many times does Coyote set a trap for the Roadrunner that come back to backfire against him? Yeah, that's what it looks like every single time. That's the idea of what's happening here, but a much more significant level. You see, the truth of verse 18 reveals the deception of verse 11. Look at that and let me show you. Verse 11 says that they lie in wait for the blood of others. 
They are poised to ambush the innocent without cause. Now look over at verse 18. What does it say? It says they lie in wait for their own blood. And the ambush they set ends up trapping themselves. You see, here's the truth behind the lie. Selfishness always enslaves its owner. Do you get that? Selfishness always enslaves its owner. It's an insatiable appetite that is never, ever satisfied. In fact, the more you get, the more you want. To the point, as verse 19 says, that it takes away the life of its possessors. You see, sin's deception says that fulfilling your desires is what gives you life. It's what makes you happy. It's what brings things alive. That personal freedom is the ultimate goal. And since you know what's best, then you do what you want. Your parents don't understand. Let's be honest. They're so out of touch, so disconnected with what the world really is all about, so you can't listen to them. Your teachers, your boss, they're not any the wiser. And your pastor, that man is so narrow-minded, he thinks the Bible has an answer for everything. Right? And for that matter, how can anyone really tell you what's best for you? You can decide that for yourself. That's the trap. It is a fantasy world built for your entertainment. A story that centers on you where there is no real consequence for your sin and it is a lie. Listen to this. The worst possible thing that could ever happen in your life is for you to be in control. You understand that, right? The worst possible thing that could ever happen in your life is for you to be in control. Because you're going to get caught in your own trap. Power, wealth, winning success. When that's what you live for, you don't control them. They control you. And please don't make the mistake of thinking of someone else when this description is being made. It wasn't written for someone else. It was written for you. This is about your heart. Because I don't know about you, but when I looked at this passage, I, I was a little bit taken back and, and somewhat confused as, okay, this is his first instruction. Rat, first rattle out of the box. And he immediately goes to a selfish sin that brings death. Right? So why, why does he do that? Why start with such a strong admonition? Well, as I thought about it, I thought, well, doesn't the narrative of Scripture do the very same thing? Here you have Adam and Eve living in the beauty of God's creation and within the beauty of God's design. And then Satan comes along to what? Set a trap, right? And how does he do it? He begins by giving the temptation that something that God said wasn't really true and then he makes an invitation to enter into a new reality. Something different than what God promised. Actually better. Because God was withholding something from them. 
And if you want what's best, then do what's different. And that's where they go. A path that takes them away from trusting God and doing what's right in His eyes. When Adam and Eve chose that path, what was the consequence of their decision? The wages of sin is death. You see, through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, from one generation to the next, including you and I. In fact, it was our selfish sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. Like our first parents, we have accepted the invitation to walk in the path of sinners. We have taken the life of an innocent man. That passage describes us. And so maybe Solomon's proverb wasn't an overstatement after all. Perhaps in his God-given wisdom, Solomon gives the way he does because he understands that unless we deal with selfish sin in our own heart, we bring, it brings death to us as well. It will destroy our relationship with God as well as our relationships with one another. It's selfish sin that wrecks marriages. It's selfish sin that destroys families. It divides churches. Jesus expressed the same heart of wisdom when you know, Solomon said it takes the life of his possessor. Well, Jesus basically says the same thing. He says, if you cling to life on your terms, you will lose your life. But if you let go of that life and trust in me, you will have a new life altogether. Proverbs is highlighting a choice that has been given to all of us. A decision to put our trust in God or to go our own way. And I believe it's a choice that we all face every single day. To live in rebellion or to live in submission. To honor God or to seek our own. So let me ask you this. How are you doing with your choices? Are you reaching for the apple? Do you doubt the truth of God's word? Be honest with yourself. Are you seeking to follow Christ or are you going your own way? Parents, are you taking advantage of the teachable moments that God gives you all throughout life every single day to instruct your kids, to guide them, not by just what you say, but perhaps more importantly, how you live? Do they see in you what it means to faithfully follow Christ? Or do they see the pursuit of power, wealth, and a life of success? And as a church, do we take seriously this idea of partnering with parents to raise up the next generation of Christian disciples? Sounds good, doesn't it? But answer that question by examining your commitment to how you live life and ministry here at Melanie Park. Are you fulfilling that call? What does that look like? And for children and students, I want you to listen to me very carefully because ultimately this passage is for you. And I believe it is very relevant to your life because you are the ones living in the deepest reality 
of the world's influence. Right? And so how will you choose to, to live your life? Power, wealth, and a winning team, that, that's an appealing invitation. The world has some strong opinions about what it means to be successful and what it takes to get there. But are they true? Or is it just the virtual world of sin? Solomon wants you to know that the invitation to be in control, to do what you want, and to live life on your terms is a trap. A trap that will ultimately cost you your life. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world? So to have all those things and yet lose his own soul. Ask yourself the hard questions. You know, Graham told me in New Life Ranch one of the things that the main speaker said when he began his uh, talk with him is he said, don't read your Bible. You remember that? And I think everybody was going, wait a second, don't read your Bible. Aren't we supposed to read the Bible? I mean, everybody tells us we need to read our Bible. He says, no, don't read your Bible. And then he goes on to explain, study your Bible. Dig deep inside your Bible. Ask the hard questions. Seek to make your faith your own. Let your parents guide you. Let those within this church body come beside you. Because no one was ever meant to walk this life independent or outside the life of the community of the body of Christ. You were made for community. We were made to encourage each other towards love and good deeds. Parents and families were made not to live that life in isolation, but live it in the community of the body of Christ. So dig deep. Study. Seek. Ask the hard questions. Make your faith your own. And then as a church, I think we need to come to grips with reality that there is a cosmic battle going on for the hearts and minds of our kids. And for ours as well. And we need to be committed to looking at the truth of God's Word to understand what is different between the virtual world of sin and the reality of God's truth. And if we don't consistently go to that place, then we're going to get sucked into the point that the truth around us becomes irrelevant. Because the messages are every day, aren't they? And so the choice is every day. And so let me encourage you to be diligent in your pursuit of what is true. Ultimately, a relationship and a faithful walk with Jesus Christ. Let's pray for our time. God, that's our desire. I think of what Joshua said um, when he stood before the people and basically gave them a very similar message and says, look, you can choose today. You can choose what you're going to do and who you're going to follow. He said, but as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, I pray that as a church body, we would affirm that same truth in our lives. As for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. We're not perfect, but we are going to seek to know and understand what it means to live by the truth of your word, by the power of your spirit, for the glory of your name. In the midst of a world that daily, even hourly, tempts us towards a virtual world that is so appealing because it really centers on me. And may we 
humble ourselves so that we don't live in that life of rebellion, but a life of submission to the truth of who you are and what you've called us to for the praise and glory of your name. Just think of that picture of standing before you. With that wreath and that medal of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ, having overcome the sin of the world because of our faith in Him, and then laying it at your feet in worship and gratitude for the great things you have done. May that be our testimony. We pray this in the name of our Savior, in whom we have victory, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great day.